Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abbott. Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Mixed a little bit of the old and the new in there. For some reason, it cut off the part with Jeff joining us from Texas this week. Um, he was gone last week, but he's back again this week from his new created home podcast studio. Our co-host, Jeff Copsetta. Jeff, how are you doing tonight, sir? I don't know. Is, is that a bad omen that, that she cut me off? She didn't even say my name. That's my favorite part. Well, is it, uh, hold on here. I can fix that. Um, f- no. Well, that's weird. I adjusted it because last week you weren't here, but let's just throw this in there. Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy and Jeff Copsetta. There you go. All is good like in the this. world. See, that's what happens when I got to adjust things and then I forget to readjust things and then we have to adjust things on the fly even though we're live. But what's going on, everybody? What's going on, YouTube? Thank you for hanging out. What's going on with us, Twitch audience? And hopefully some of you are joining us via YouTube through the Facebook page. If you want to chat with us through this podcast, um, head over to YouTube and watch the live stream there and you can participate in the chat window and... um, Talk to us, or you can give us a call. We want to hear from you, 239-222, I'm sorry, 239-299-3896. So, do you guys always get crappy weather in the summer in Texas? I just thought that was a Florida thing. I wasn't aware that you guys get hail, first and foremost. What is with all the hail, by the way? But, yeah, it's like, storms are one thing, but when the heavens are falling on you and putting golf size, golf ball-sized dents in all your property, that's a whole other problem, fella. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a problem. But I'll tell you, May, it seems like Memorial Day, don't make plans in the Hill Country of Texas on Memorial Day because we always do. Mm-hmm. And it always we always get pummeled with something. I mean, we usually see hail maybe once a year, but not like what we just had a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and then, yeah, like thunderstorms every day this week, you know, hit or miss. If they hit, it's in the afternoon. It's it's weird. I I don't know, man. It's it's been been crazy, but it's not summer yet. So yeah, let's get, do it now. Get it over and enjoy summer. I don't know if it's the Floridian in me, but to me, whenever it gets ninety one degrees every day, it's it's summer. I don't care what month it is. It's just doggone hot. It's summertime. But well, I, I I just had a thought because you've recently had a full time career change. Um, are is your new museum doing something for memorial weekend or is this going to be the first time in a while you've had a weekend free of um commitment to history that you're going to be able to spend a little free time with your family this year it's going to be amazing yeah so basically uh i've been working every memorial day i mean i was a park ranger for nine years that's a big weekend uh and then i went right into the museum field that was always a program weekend so I don't know, it was probably 13, 14 years in a row that Memorial Day, I was working. Yeah. Uh, last year, because of COVID, you know, that was when we were right at the beginning of COVID. Everybody was freaking out. So, yeah, we I actually got to hang out with the family last Memorial Day. So same thing this year. Yeah, the career change happening officially really next week. Um, and uh, but taking a four day for, for Memorial Day for sure um, to uh hang out with the wife and, and kids and just enjoy it like a normal person should. 
in, in honor of, of what that holiday is all about. And um, yeah, so we'll see. I'm going to kind of go into like partial retirement for the summer <laughs> and, uh, and, and hope to attack in a different direction in, in the fall. But I, I definitely plan on uh, spending, spending the summer with my kids, the new baby that's coming in June and my wife, you know, this is, this is baby number four. And I was never, we never had, it just didn't line up Yeah. Me to, uh, to be able to hang out with the newborn, you know, we either financially couldn't do it or whatever, just didn't happen. So this time it's the last one. We're going to make it happen. Well, congrats. How far along is she? Is she ready to run? Uh, like a year and a half. <laughs> a year and a <laughs> half. Oh, no, that's right. No, what threw me off was is um, you posted uh, anniversary photos the other day, and in, in one of the photos, she was still pregnant. So that's what threw me off because, like, the last photo well, I yeah. seen of her was the one you just posted, I think, on Instagram of her still pregnant. Yeah, like, way, way pregnant. Yeah, she she's been she's been pregnant since I've known her. And she's like, uh, no, <laughs> like, that picture's actually <laughs> that picture is pretty recent. That picture was taken maybe a month ago. The one that you just saw. So that's this baby. Well, that's what she's I said. When it, I was like, I'm like, when did she do? You're like, oh, a year and a half ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, she's like been pregnant for a year. And a half. <laughs> okay. So no, I thought you're. Ins- I'm like, I'm so, not that out of touch that this kid was born a year and a half ago, and I'm that such a horrible person. That I didn't realize it. So I'm like backpedaling. Like, Wait a minute, you just posted a photo where she looks like she's about to drop any day. Yeah, no, she she's due probably the end of June. I mean, she's the due date's the beginning of July, but it's this this little this little guy is far ahead. He in another couple of weeks he'll weigh more than my first son when he was born. Well, you and know, and we still have another six weeks to go, uh, five weeks to go. So, well, you know, June 29th is a good D day. So if she wants to drop that bomb on June 29th, your child and I will celebrate the same birthday. <laughs> So um, I've actually got you covered because number two was born on June 29th. My first daughter was June 29th. So you're covered. How crazy would that be though? Both your sibling, you had two kids or siblings who were born on the same day. Well, I was born June 3rd. My son's born June 9th and then daughter June 29th. Number three, she was born in February. She's weird. Yeah, uh, I'm actually those. hoping this one goes around June 20th. I'm hoping it's June 25th. Uh, you know, that's like, Custer Day. That's the that's the battle, little big one. Yeah, you just have to, every month or just every year for June. You say, well, here comes the June birthday budget blowout. <laughs> like in my family right now, we're like that uh, with the, all the nieces, nephews, and extended family. Like right now, I think April up until the end of August, every month there's like at least three birthdays. So we're constantly going to kids parties or young adults yeah. parties. It's like every week. Oh, we gotta go out and buy presents again, huh? <laughs> what? My my buddy's like that. His his daughter and his wife have the same birthday, so that's kind of cool. But yeah. Huh, cool. So what yeah. else been going on over in your world, fella? Yeah. So well, uh, we're not going to be doing any programming Memorial Day at, uh, at the at the museum, the Highland Lakes Air Museum in Burnett. That's um, you know we've mentioned that before. Uh, I, some of you know where I work professionally, but you know because of liabilities and everything. I can't mention that, but that's the, that's the one that I'm moving away from. Um, but coming in, um, to, you know, I, I don't know how much more time I'm going to spend at High Lakes Air Museum. I mean, it is volunteer, you know, I'm a CAF member. They, uh, you know, elected me to, or appointed me to be the museum director, but really 
you know, it's, we do what we can with what we got. Sure. Um, the good thing is I've over the past few years, I've really uh, developed a, a little bit of a following of other reenactors and, and guys and gals that just really love that time in history. And they're, you know, they're loyal everywhere. They're going to, they're going to go wherever the reenactments are. I mean, just like you traveling to a lot of different ones and a lot of our listeners, I'm sure they don't just do one reenactment. They don't just volunteer at one museum or one place. So, uh, that's what a, a lot of uh, my help uh, I'm lucky to have uh, people, you know, individuals like that, that are really invested and are looking for programming. So um, we had our air show in March. We talked about that an episode or two ago. Yep. It was a record breaking, uh, you know, crowd uh, in the 29 years they've been doing it. So I've kind of challenged myself to create four public programs a year um to really kind of get back in with the community because this squadron has suffered some traumatic losses they lost three aircraft in about a month and a half wow and yeah a, a c-47 l-17 and the snj so the snj is back up the c-47 was a total loss there's another one coming in that's been donated to us but that's probably another year out when it's actually on site so um so yeah so building a ground forces unit getting more reenactors to come in to do educational programs. We're building a cadet program that's brand new to the squadron. Uh, so our next public program is June 19th. For anybody that's going to be in the area on June 19th, it's a Saturday. Uh, we're doing wine and wings. We're going to have a local wine vendor come out, set up, and we're going to raffle off a couple flights in the SNJ. We've got a couple other experiences. We've got about eight items, actually, that we're raffling. Uh, we're going to have live music. Um, but by a couple different groups, you know, 40s, 50s style music. So it's going to be all outside. We'll demonstrate weapons. Uh, we're going to bring the Bell 47 helicopter out, like kids climbing that. So that's like a little mash, little flying bubble helicopter. Yeah. Um, just kind of have like a kid corner, probably going to have popcorn. We're going to invite, you know, a bunch of the uh, county commissioners, the city manager, the mayor, get them out there, have a glass of wine with us, watch airplanes flying in the evening. Um, so we're hoping it's a pretty good event. I mean, it's it's crunch time we're about 30 days out um so we still haven't even finalized the permit with the city yet so it's going to be like boom 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 to try to you know develop these programs but uh hopefully it'll start bringing more reenactors to my area give us more content um you know for for what's the scuttlebutt and maybe create more sponsors for the podcast and everybody kind of all hands washing the other uh, to feed it off of each other. So yeah, there's some exciting things, um, coming up here recently. What is the likelihood now that you're, um, freed up a little bit that you may expand your participation in this hobby side where you might actually venture out and just go participate instead of plan, initiate and, uh, facilitate an event you, have you thought about maybe expanding your impressions, uh, getting some gear, and maybe just say, it'd be nice for me just to show up at a weekend and do nothing but lay around and maybe get up and go run where I'm told to run and then come back and and just be the layabout, be the living history uh, yeah. display of showing just, hey, I don't have to worry about making sure the, the trains are running. I don't have to do this program. I, I can just sit here and participate and just be a reenactor for once. Dude, that would be awesome. <laughs> That's my goal. It's like being a captain that wants to be promoted to sergeant. <laughs> you know? Maybe maybe um, what we should do yeah. is maybe we should plan ahead. Um, it's usually January, February. 
We need to try to get you out to the uh, Lakeland, Georgia event. It's in Georgia. That's the one at the um, Camp Patton Boy Scout camp where it's basically a eight-mile, four-hour tactical event, and then we do a 45-minute public event, and then the next day a tactical event, and we're just out in the woods humping and shooting and just uh, doing our thing. I think you might enjoy that. Oh, man, yeah. There, there's a couple that are on my radar around the country. One is um, it's called Troops and Trains. Okay. It's actually kind of closer to my neck of the woods where I was, where I grew up in New Jersey up over, I think it's in Strasburg, PA. Okay. Um, that would, that's definitely on my bucket list. That one and the LA air raid sounds like another really cool one. My, my, uh, my bucket list item, but see the part is because I live all the way down in the tip of Florida to get to that D day event in Ohio. Oh yeah. Um, it's a 17 hour drive from here to my mom's house and that's in Northern Kentucky. And so it would be another six hour drive on top of that. So you're looking at roughly with travel stopping and sleeping 24 hours each way travel time. So that means I'd almost have to take an entire week off of work to facilitate that or deal with TSA and transporting firearms to the airport and then even still, you have to fly like to PA or like Cleveland, Ohio, and then rent a car and then travel hours to get there. But I've got to figure out the logistics for that one because that's definitely my bucket list to get up there for that D-Day event in Ohio because that's like probably the largest living history event in the freaking nation right now. And that's- yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I know there's one. So one of my buddies, we're going to get him on our show, Steve. He's uh, really um, – you follow him on Instagram, I'm sure uh got a, a numerous impressions from world war ii vietnam I mean, the guy's great um he's uh he's part of the adt uh jump team there and um i guess they're headquartered out of franklin oklahoma okay and they're developing i guess that's like the world war ii reenactor jump school like that's where you go to train or at least one of the places yeah there, there, um, there's but, one in pensacola florida we had them on there from the round canopy jump team and they train out of there, and I yeah yeah I, I'm sure there's there's numerous ones for, but for his I think for his group that's kind of their their main hub. And he was telling me that they're actually looking at expanding it to uh, not just jump school, but more of almost like a national World War II reenactor boot camp training center. That'd be cool. Um, yeah, you know, get armor out there, train on armor, train infantry. Uh, get a bunch of women out there and, and, and all the branches, the waves, the wax, the spars, you know, the wasps, all all the women's services. Um, I, I mean, it sounds like it, it could really potentially uh, take off. I know um, they've got an event or a training event, I guess, in October for about a week or so. I'm really hoping I've got the time to go up there and just kind of shadow Steve and see what that's like, see would, what it's about. Would you, you know, jump? Hopefully get up in one of the sevens. What's that? Would you jump? negative <laughs> the, ma- no. the machismo in me were like yeah that sounds badass and i and i really really put some thought into it because I, to be honest with you i don't know what your friends charge but that round canopy jump team for a weekend like the cover is like cheaper than if you went to just a normal sesma you know go train for five hours and do like a tandem jump they're like their yeah. weekend thing is it's super affordable but then i got to thinking about it it's like, 
I like the idea, but I just have, <laughs> well, no, it's like, seriously, I, it's like, I got a family business relying on me. I got two kids. It's like now when you think about jumping, you, I'm no longer thinking about myself and think about what, if something were to happen, how many people would that affect? And that's, yeah. what, that's what slowed me down on, you know, doing it. Cause I, I watch his videos and I, I really, really think about it. And then I'm like, well, but what if, I mean, not what if rarely happens, but it happens. It happens. No, I, I hear you. I mean, I did a lot of crazy stuff in the army. I mean, we were training in, in choppers like once a week before we deployed. We were always doing something crazy, propelling off of something, jumping off in the water out of something. Like we were always doing crazy stuff. But yeah, you're like at that point in my life now where it's like, eh, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. I got nothing to prove. I want to do you a know? little. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Just. Even before the World War II stuff, I remember like five or six years ago, we had some friends down from Jersey and they were like going online thinking, hey, let's get on to, let's go out and skydive. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got to think about like, yeah, that'd be cool. But uh, fuck, damn, I got a lot of people relying on me not to be dead. And it's like, <laughs> hey, real, did you hear, uh, it's, it's so insane to me that this many years later, we're still finding undetonated ordinances throughout the world. Uh, just this week, um, as or last week, yeah, last Thursday, World War II bomb found in Frankfurt safely detonated after mass evacuation. A massive World War II bomb was found in Germany's financial capital, Frankfurt, was safely detonated in the early hours Thursday. The city's fire service said, allowing tens of thousands of evacuated residents to return home. Uh, the 500-kilogram unexploded bomb was unearthed during construction. That's how it always works. It makes A lot of times I wonder if these bombs like landed in previously like super, super marshy wetlands, somewhere where they just, yeah. A, not only did they not undetonate, I mean, not only did they not detonate, but they kind of buried themselves so deep in the ground that during the post-war cleanup, these things were just, I mean, I doubt people just, oh, let's bury it with a tractor and let's move on. Maybe they did, but it's always, it's always surprising how many of these things are found. But anyhow, on the 500 kilogram unexploded bomb was unearthed during construction work on Wednesday in a densely populated Nordland area of the city. Uh, the location firefighters said it made it particularly challenged to remove the Frankfurt um, newspaper reported that the ordinance had been discovered right next to a children's playground, of course, um, with a depth of about 6.5 feet. Its report said that its report said that it controlled the blast, which happened after midnight. If you evacuated the whole town, why wait until midnight? But anyhow, uh, sounded like the rumbling thunder and left a hole three meters deep and 10 meters wide. Fighter fires said that they had covered the bomb with 40 truckloads of sand before detonating it in order to minimize damage to surrounding buildings. Around 25,000 people have been asked to evacuate the area, including the occupants of a nearby community hospital. Yeah, they're showing this map, and it's dead nuts in the middle of the city. I mean, it's not it's definitely not out in farm area. Among residents who took shelter at the skating rink was 29-year-old Tobias carrying his pet cat in his cage. Even in Germany, we're doing local news. you got to get the local angle. you got to find the guy to interview who had to de-home his cat for the weekend. Uh, seven bombs were defused in 2020 on the land near Berlin where Tesla plans to build its first factory in Europe for its electric cars. Other bombs were also discovered last year in Frankfurt, Cologne, and Dortmund. In Frankfurt, the discovery of a 1.4-ton bomb in 2017 led to the removal of 65,000 people 
the biggest such evacuation in Europe since 1945. So it just goes to show you all these years later. So I was sitting around the house tonight preparing for the podcast, and I I got to thinking, and I just said into my fancy cable voice activated remote control World War II and see what pops up. And, of course, you had wind talkers and um, all these other things. And then I saw this movie, and I know you watch a lot of the, or you've seen a lot of the older style movies, and we talk about older World War II movies on here. Have you ever seen Ambush Bay, or have you ever ever heard of Ambush Bay? Never heard of it. Uh, for the bay at the Joanville Island, oh, I'll say plot. It came out in 1966, uh, directed by Ron Winston. Um, it has uh, Hugh. Hugh O'Brien, Mickey Rooney, James Mitchell, and Richard LaSalle. Plot. Prior to the 1944 American invasion of the Philippines, a hand-picked team of U.S. Marine Corps amphibious reconnaissance scouts is landed by a PBY Catalina with its mission to uh, contact intelligence agents with crucial information. Each Marine is not only experienced but has special skills with the exception of the radio officer PFC Grenier. I started watching this, and I got about 15 minutes into it. I don't know if it's because it's from 1966 and a lot of that stuff has a slow slog to it. I don't know if it's my picky eye and the fact that I'm like nitpicking their uniforms as they're going on. I'm like, well, they got the P-42s. That camo pattern looks a little funny. Why in the hell are they wearing army suspenders? And... Uh, Believe it or not, it was quick to uh, have some main characters start dying off, but I just, I really couldn't get into it, and then I realized, well, this is probably why I've never heard anybody talk about this movie, because it really wasn't, I don't know. So, I bring that up because I got bored with that quickly, and so I went back, and I came across a documentary that I'd never heard of, and I'll play a quick preview clip of this, um, and so if you guys are bored and you're hanging around Netflix... Actually, no, this is on Amazon, so I won't even play the Netflix sounder. I actually have the Netflix sounder I was going to play. But no, this is actually on Amazon. Um, this is called, interestingly enough, this is called Forgiving Dr. Mangala. On the 40th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, a handful of survivors of this monument to Nazi evil returned. Eva Kaur with her twin sister Miriam found a record of their past. Eva and Miriam were nine years old and in the front row when the Soviet soldiers liberated this death factory years ago. And they found among a few thousand survivors a large group of twins. Twins who underwent inhuman medical experiments at the hands of Dr. Joseph Mengele, the camp surgeon at Auschwitz, who was known as the Angel of Death. Just to be free from the Nazis, that did not remove the pain they have inflicted upon me. There might be an other way that survivors can heal themselves. I have found one way. Forgive your worst enemy. It will heal your soul and it will set you free. I, Eva Moses Kaur, a twin who survived as a child Joseph Mengele's experiment at Auschwitz 50 years ago, 
hereby give amnesty to all Nazis who participated directly or indirectly in the murder of my family and millions of others. It's improper. It's improper. I should be permitted. I should be asked. How can you speak in the name of the people who are not alive anymore? I mean, it's... It, it's it, it, I shiver when I, when I think of it. Forgiving Dr. Mangula is a 2006 documentary film about Eva Moses Kaur, a survivor of the Holocaust and of Dr. Joseph Mangala and his staff who experimented on her, her twin sister, and as well as approximately 1,400 twins from Auschwitz. And um, I just started watching this. It's pretty interesting because parts of it take place were were recorded in like 1980, so short actually in 1985 a short 40 years later and there's footage of her back at auschwitz and as you can imagine there's a it's in a lot more original condition now then than it is now of course because time goes by all the wood rots away etc but uh it's an interesting story because as you heard her say there in her little speech that she's taken it upon herself to forgive this guy for the things that he did to her and her family. Then you heard another woman talking there who's also a surviving twin who said, where does she get off apologizing on all the behalf of us? But uh, it's interesting. And we kind of talked about this with the canteens and how um, the canteen company moved to Chillicothe, Ohio at some point, which is where my aunt and uncle were teachers. And it's always weird when I start, digging into some of this World War II stuff, and it, it really does remind you how small of a world we live in. So this survivor of uh, Dr. Mangala, she met, she went to Israel in the 50s, and then she met her soon-to-be husband, and they moved to a small, the small town of Terre Haute, Indiana, in 1964. Interestingly enough, Terre Haute, Indiana is a super small town. It's right on the border of Illinois, and that just happens to be the town where my other aunt and her husband basically uh, ran a business. And I'm like watching this file footage of them interviewing her because she's doing real estate. And it's like Terre Haute in 2001. And I'm seeing them driving around this town. And I'm like, that woman lived there from 1966 to, to the mid-2000s. My uncle owned a Z-Bart, which is a rough proofing company that basically in the up until they start making cars out of plastic, putting undercoating on everything, they would rust proof everything underneath. He owned that company, and his wife was a banker and a um, Lonenberger basket salesperson, which was huge in the Midwest. I'm just thinking, there's a good point at some good, very good chance in a small ass town between 1966 and the mid 2000s that my aunt could have very well had some sort of communication with this lady because it's not a big town at all. But I'm just watching it, and she, she, in her quest, it's weird. Her and her sister had these experiments because they had a historian on there say the reason Mangala liked twins so much is it basically gave him a built-in control group. You got two people that made up the same DNA. They basically have the same, you know, at least the, the identical twins, the same genetic makeup, same color, eyes, and all that. So he could use one of them as a control, use the other one as the guinea pig, and see the different results 
And one of the things that she got, and I haven't watched the entire thing because I was watching it before it came on here, and I don't know if she ever made progress on this. I know she didn't before her sister died, but um, one of the injections her sister got caused her sister's kidneys to stop growing. And so even when she got to be in her 60s, she had kidneys the size of a 10-year-old. And at one point, one of them failed, so the twin sister donated her kidney. And her, her twins, while she lived in Terre Haute, her other sister still lived in Israel. But while her sister was in the hospital with all these kidney problems, the doctors kept saying, man, we, if we only knew what was injected into her. You know? And so this got, you know, this got uh, Eva to go on his conquest to try to track down any sort of documentation or medical logs that Mangala kept that may be beneficial to the survivors and their later aging health problems to have some sort of clue of what the hell were done to these people. But I'm sure that stuff was burnt a long, long time ago. But the crazy thing. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up um, because so just last night, you know, I like to kind of like my daily routine. Some of the things I look up is I always check what's coming up on, on, Turner classic movies for the day, you know, I try to, cause it never seems like I, there'll be like a really good movie that I wanted to see forever. Just kind of thrown in the middle of junk in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. Okay? Sort of like, it's not like, it's not around an anniversary or a theme or a holiday. It's just like, why was that in there? Like, man. So I've learned like, okay, every day I'm going to check. Cause there's always like one really good one between six ones that I've never heard of. But anyway, so just kind of looking through, uh, last night, the, the movie Judgment at Nuremberg came on. Uh, so that's a 1961 flick with, a, with really an all-star cast, which is surprising to me because the movie, and like they tell you at the beginning, if you've ever watched anything on TCM, they give you that little, you know, the, the host gives you a little backstory of stuff. And, and it's funny because they're saying, like, how do you keep people in suspense about four Nazi judges at, at Nuremberg? Like, I think the one guy said, you know, it's not like there's going to be like a surprise witness at the end that these guys are going to get off. <laughs> right. They're guilt. You know what's going to happen. So, and there's not a lot of location changes. I mean, it's the courtroom. It's, it's the trial. Um, it's a lot Spencer of, Tracy, it's a lot of Spencer. bright lights, sunglasses and headphones. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So Spencer, Spencer Tracy kind of heads it off. Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Cliff shows up, Judy Garland, uh, Marlena Dietrich. I, I mean, uh, and, and one of the um, one of the other one of the four judges is uh, Werner Klemper, who oh. you know most of us all know as Colonel Clink from Hogan's Heroes. But he played one of the Nazi uh, judges or one of the one of the judges Nazi judges on trial. Um, but so it's a 1961. I mean, it's black and white. It's Spencer Tracy. Uh, you're going to see a really a very young and sharp looking William Shatner as kind of his aide as a captain in the army. Um, so watch the first half last night. We're going to finish it up tonight after this episode, but so it's funny. It's it, it, kind of the same subject that you just kind of fell into. I mean, my wife's the Holocaust nerd. I, I am not, I, I, I mean, I don't know, man. I just don't want to read about it. Yeah. I, I, just, I don't, I don't want to know. Like I, I want it. I, I know enough to where I know I don't want to know anymore. I guess I don't know how to put it. It's just a, it's just a sad, just what happened to humanity, not that long ago, not that long ago. There's kids that were liberated from a from a concentration camp, 
that are 80 year old people right now. But I think it's very important to detail though, because they are well, not only are they the, the last survivors because of how young they were, but especially when it comes to history, they are perfect to point out when people say, well, that happened so long. It didn't happen that long ago. There's people still alive who were there. And so, you know, the, right. it, it's, and not only were there people still alive who were there, but there's the people who were alive who were there during the worst part, you know, w- at least what the citizens could deal with. I mean, I'm sure, I don't know. It was just the, when, when people think of the atrocities of world war two, they think of the concentration camps and, there were kids there who were five, six, ten, four who were still alive, and so it's like it wasn't that long ago. But no, not at all. And go ahead. Go ahead. But in this documentary, I I don't know how I feel about this woman yet because one in, in the preview you heard her giving a speech of where she forgives somebody on the behalf and the other, some of the other survivors are like, what, what gives you the right? And I, and I understand. Um, and this isn't what I have a problem with this. I don't really have a problem with it. This isn't the part that makes me scratch my head. The part I'm going to tell you about next is the part that makes you scratch your head. And the part where she really kind of inadvertently offended some of the other survivors. So there's this doctor named Dr. Hans, um, Munich or Munch. Um, he was a German Nazi party member who also worked with the SS doctor um, at Auschwitz, but he was one of the very few acquitted at the Nuremberg trials because of some of the Auschwitz survivors said that he was personally responsible for saving their lives. Um, so, I mean, it doesn't mean he didn't do horrible things, but he was one of the few that, you know, were not sentenced to, you know, death. And so, in like 1993, she tracks him down. No, not 1993, 1995. It was the 50th anniversary. So she tracks this this doctor down and goes and has a sit down with him and showing him photos. And then she says, oh, I'm heading over to Auschwitz on the 50th anniversary. Do you want to come? And of course, he, he wants to make amends and all that. But I guess she didn't really think to fly it by <laughs> the people who are organizing this event. You're going to have all these survivors who are there for the 50th anniversary. And she comes walking in arm in arm with this guy. Hey, look who I brought. <laughs> it's like, and, and, and the narration's like, there were some concerns and some people who were outraged. You think? Yes, it's great. I... It's great that you found for you personally, the best way to lose the nightmares is to forgive people. And this guy in the interview they showed you sitting down looks like you know he says he has nightmares he's he's repented and that's fine too, but maybe just hear me out before you drag him down to Auschwitz on the fiftieth anniversary, maybe blowing a phone call to the organizers, some of the other people who are going to be there, give them a heads up, just a thought. But so that's that's, that's pertinent intel right there. Yeah. Hey, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she thought since enough people stood up for him at the Nuremberg tries, trials, they didn't kill him. But uh, that's still, I mean, that's still, she said the very first time she went back, because, you know, she left Israel and had been living in Indiana since 1966. But when she decided to go back to Auschwitz, her husband was a survivor too, but he he didn't want to go, which I completely understand. Um, 
I forget what airline. Uh, it was a German airline that she took. It was a direct flight. And uh, she didn't really think about it because obviously most Germans speak English and you think you're on an international airplane. She, she says she gets on the airplane and they taxi out and all of the airline's instructions from the stewardess is all in German. And she's, I guess, the first time since 1944 I've been in a locked location <laughs> with rows and rows of people, dim lighting, and hear nothing but German. She's like, if I could have, she's like, if that plane wasn't sealed up and on the taxi, she's like, I would have gotten out of there as quick as I could. And I could only imagine. And the other interesting thing is in this documentary, no one, she's like, because she was 11 when she was in Auschwitz. And that's why her memory's so clear. Because it's not like she was five. She was 11 years old. And she was talking about one of the things they would do is they would lock her and her sister in a room for hours on end and then compare like how their dup- their pupils dilated, turn lights and all this. And while she's telling a story, the document, I don't know if they arranged it or she just so had an appointment with the optometrist, but they're sitting in the room with the optometrist and they're putting the equipment down and people dilating her pupils while they're narrating her telling a story about all the experiments that happened to her with the Dr. Mangala and the eyes and stuff. And uh, her friend was talking, and she's like, you know, she'd be upset if I told you this, but uh, you can definitely tell she has some telltale signs of someone who's had everything. Literally, you know, with the exception of her twin sister who died, you know, while they're in her 70s. Her mom, her husband, and her uh, brothers were all, she hadn't seen them since the day they showed up at Auschwitz. But uh, her friend was saying the trauma the psychological effect of having everything you have stripped away from you. Even though she has now been free and out of that situation three times longer than the years of horrors that she was there to this day, well, in 2001, whenever she'd go to sleep, she would sleep laying on top of her purse. She would have all her doors like triple locked. And, like, if they went to a hotel room or anywhere where there was food, and you hear this part all the time, you know, people, they would just grab a biscuit or roll and wrap it up and put it in their purse. And she's, and she, and it, it just struck you when she put it this way. She's like, could you imagine living in such a way where all your belongings, all your identity, all your family, everything you personally own was taken away from you that now, after all these years, you still sleep with your most valuable possessions in your purse underneath your blankets with you, even at that age. And that just goes, yeah. shows like, holy hell, people don't even think about that. Yeah. And my brother and I were kind of talking about this shortly on our other our OG5 podcast, which is up on Patreon. So if you're a Patreon member, head over there and launch your Patreon app, and you can listen to the OG5 podcast. And um, I don't want to get into it here, but I was telling people when it comes down to what's going on in the Middle East. And there's a good documentary called um, The Longest Road Home or Long Trip Home. And it was a base, basically about how Israel came to be in the form in which we know it now. And it was interesting because, you know, we hear about the Holocaust. We hear about the, the final solution, the rounding up the Jews. And, and then we hear, all well, the war ended. And everybody lived happily ever after. No. <laughs> Those 
Jews who were liberated from concentration camps, I would say 80% of them lived in Red Cross camps for four or five years because just because the Nazis gave up and the war ended, the anti-Semitism didn't just dry up. Um, all those people's land, property, businesses were gone. Some of them, when they did try to go home, they were ran out of town. And they literally, until like, you know, the war in 45, a lot of these guys, a lot of these guys, men and women, children were displaced until like 1953. They were basically going from camp to camp for almost 10 years until a lot of them ended up going to Israel or finally finding a place in different parts of Europe or United States or Canada where they could finally put down roots. And so, yeah, 1945 ended, the war ended, but their war didn't. The the, the direct trauma and annihilation of their species ended, but it took them 10 years, for a lot of them, just to find a place they could move into and call a home without being ran out of town. It's just so insane. Yeah. So if you guys, yeah. if you're into documentaries and you want to look at the interesting fact of this, once again, it's called Forgiving Dr. Mangala. I'm about an hour and a half into it, and um, it's pretty interesting, to say the least. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, that's funny that you mentioned some of that stuff, because that's something I wanted to cover. Uh, and we can do it now, or we can do it later. Yeah, we but, do now. Uh, the last, last episode that, that we did, I was I was in the middle of a book, and I wanted, I told you, so I'm going to try to have it done before the next episode that we do. And I not only have that one done, I'm about halfway through this the, the next one. So um, if you don't mind, I'll cover that right now. Yeah, go ahead. Because, uh, you know, we like to do this. I like to do it every episode because I like to, to review books for people. So Winging a Prayer by Harry Crosby. I mean, it's like the old Bible for the 8th Air Force, probably the best, um, at least air war uh, memoir that there probably is. Um, if you've never read any book about the air war in Germany, this is the probably the best one to start out on because it's such an easy read. The guy's like your buddy when he's telling you the story. Um, it's there's no over exaggerations. There's it, it's it's pretty cut and dry, but there's enough comedy. There's enough uh, flirtatious British women, <laughs> you know. It's not over the top. It's it's the man's real story. Sure. Um, and it's incredible. And the fact that this guy survived what he did, um, it's incredible. I'm, I'm just, I'm so thankful that, that this guy wrote this book because it is really, it's a really cool part of history. But so finish that one up and picked up another one. Well, before we move on to the next one, while. before we move on to the next one, let me just ask you, because you kind of talk about the easy read. Um, when it comes to you and the books you prefer to read, do you find it more appealing, more, I guess, easier to get lost in if it's more first person accounts or you into the logistics, the dates, the, you know, the um, documentation side of the book, which way do you lean? So that all has to do, I guess, with my mood. I, typically, I read heavier books. Um, you know, if you want to learn about the Pacific War, you, you need to read Ian Toll's trilogy. Um, but it's like, it's reading statistics. <laughs> I mean, it's 
it, it's a good read. It's not necessarily dry if you're used to what I read. Um, but I read stuff to try to understand it. And, and if I want to understand a battle, if I want to know the logistics, if I want to understand it from a strategic or a tactical standpoint, I read those books. I don't read a memoir because a memoir is this guy's war. He doesn't know what's going on around him. He doesn't know what other units are doing. He doesn't know the backstory to the orders that he's going, why are we doing this? Yeah. Why am I stuck out here? Why are we attacking the same thing we just attacked yesterday? Because he doesn't see the big picture. I know that. I was part. I've met so many people that know more about what I did in Baghdad than I did. <laughs> I was there. Yeah. But it wasn't for me to know. You know, so it's interesting uh, making that connection now. That same thing. I probably know more about battles from the Second World War than guys who were there because they only had their little sliver. So um, I, I I stick with a book, whether it's an easy read or, or a really hard read. Um, you know, I, there's a couple that kind of hit the top of my head as far as a really hard read is probably books like At Dawn We Slept. Um, everything you could ever possibly want to know about Pearl Harbor. Um, but it's 25 years worth of research. It's a healthy book. Um, it's just what it is, but I get stuck on a subject. So, uh, Harry Crosby's book there is probably the sixth book, uh, in a row that, um, I've been reading about the air war and the air force. Now I peppered in a couple. I, I read a book about the Titanic just to kind of like, okay, Casual reading, <laughs> yeah, it's still history, but uh, or or I'll pepper in some World War One stuff. But um, I guess it just depends. If, if once you kind of understand, and, and the first three or four books is really you understand the operations of the of how the Eighth Air Force was established, what its mission was, why it was so hard, but why they stuck to what they were doing, no matter what the losses were in the spring of '43. Um, they stuck to it. it. It's it was that's what they did. It was a strategic plan, um, and it worked. Um, but then, when you really want to know what it's like to clang around inside of a B seventeen in a navigator seat, when you're trying to you know figure out exactly where you're at and rendezvous a bunch of other groups behind you, and you know you're hitting flack over Bremen, then a book like this, you know, you, it doesn't matter. You don't need to know the transition between IRA acre and when Doolittle took over the air force and then how the 15th was operating 15th air force was operating out of Italy and hitting other, uh, you don't need to get into it. doesn't matter. Let's <laughs> just enjoy the book. And See, smell I, the cordite. I, I'm, I don't know if it's because I grew up with learning disability or the fact that I didn't start leisure reading until I was in my mid thirties, but I'm kind of the opposite way. I'm the, I'm the same as you when I get stuck on a, on a series or a location i'm looking at my books you know you know i read the band of brothers book and then i got like um the other you know other books from other people easy company who weren't covered in there you know i got the babe hepburn book and then that and then i went to the pacific and i got you know i'm over here looking i got you'll be sorry i got a helmet for my pillow i got um the book that they wrote after the movie the pacific i got the battleground of the pacific i got guadalcanal diaries this and that but I was just thinking, I'm I'm kind of like you, but I, I do it backwards. Um, I'll read all the first-person accounts, right? And I'll even read it two or three times. And then I'll get familiar with 
whether it's Guadalcanal or Tarawa, this and that. And then I will go and read the logistic versions because then in my mind, I can picture the firsthand accounts that I've already read once or twice of them performing, you know, going across the air base at Peleliu or the landings at Tarawa or, you know, Bougainville and all that. And then I go back and read the logistic parts of it. And it kind of, for me, fills it in all nice and neat because now I'm already... I'm already uh, dedicated. I'm already pot committed because I've already read so much about these guys who were there. They talk about, you know, Alligator Creek or, you know, this and that. And then it, for me, for a perfect example, you know, reading Helmet from a Pillow and with the old breed. And then when you read Sid Phillips' You'll Be Sorry, um, that's the first time. And then um, Leckie covers it in Strongman Armed. Um, but Helmet from a Pillow is the first time I'd heard anybody talk about something as important but historically mundane as the um, the union labor strike in um, New Zealand with the offloading of the chips and how, you know, that probably wouldn't have been as interesting to me if I hadn't already read the other books and known the amount of logistics and stuff required. And then here's Sid Phillips that we heard talked about in, uh, with the old breed, him actually going into great detail, walking about, talking about working the work detail where it was raining so much that all the labels were falling off and the cardboard boxes are falling apart and they had mounds of soggy cornflakes stacked up here and there. And and so for me, it's, I, I, I'm kind of like you where I get stuck on something and I want all the information, but for me, I tend to read the firsthand accounts first and then go back and read the logistical stuff, which ties it all together in a way that my little mind can handle it. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I just kind of, it just seems like books kind of find me. I'll have a book on the shelf for like three years mm-hmm. and I'll pick it up and I'm like, mm, no. Yeah. And I may do that three or four times. And then the one time, like, okay, like I'm about to finish, like, I'm never not in a book. So before I'm done with a book, I know what's next in line. Yep. <laughs> so I don't have that gap. There's no lag. And that, if I sit there in front of my bookcase and I, there's just nothing. It's not hitting me. All right. Time to get on Amazon. <laughs> well, that's where um, I'm lucky. There's a huge flea market here called Flea Masters. And in the main pavilion, there's this bookstore that's four or five lanes long. It's been around for 20 years. And they have a huge military book section. And you can just stand back and scan the books. And you can tell the old ones because they, they usually have a solid color hardback. It's usually green or maroon. has some fade to it. And so you can just stand back at a distance, peruse those, and then grab those out and say, oh, this was written in 1956. This is only $3 for a account. Cool. And I'll stack up books, and then I'll just bring them home through my bookshelf, and kind of like you are saying, as you read through it, um, and right. I'll get some for presents and all that. And, like, I'm, someone got me the fatal dive I've yet to crack into. I haven't got into my Navy side yet, um, but when I get into the Navy wanting to get into submarine battles, I already got a – book here called the fatal dive and i think i have another one down there too so it's um definitely got a lot of reading to do but it's so nice and i think it's not only nice but important to do that now with how much addiction we have when it comes to digital devices and do yourself a favor if you are reading but you're one of these cats or kittens if you will i guess if we're talking uh tiger king terminology here if you're one of these people who find yourself reading on a nook or, or, you know, or tablet or your phone. That's cool. If that's the quickest way for you to acquire 
information, but there's just something about putting down the device and picking up an old school book. And I personally prefer hardbacks, but I won't steer away from a softback. But there's just yeah. something about a book and having a lot. You, if you had looked at me in 21 and say, hey, you know, when you're in your near 40s, you're going to have a library of World War II books. I look at you like you're insane because, once again, I didn't read back then. I didn't even read comic books. I hated reading. And so the fact yeah. that I'm staring across my studio at probably 50 books and I've read probably 39 of them. <laughs> that's in, and that's not that's not counting the fact that I've run with the old breed three times. I read Helmet from a Pillow three times and Strongman Armed, which is a hefty book. I've read that one twice. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely. Now, what's the second book that you parlayed into? Yeah, yeah. So it, same same topic, and, and I'll tell you before I get into that that uh, I have really found it hard to read a book twice. Really, it's not hard to do it, but I have. Um, so I've got in my office in the house. I've got over six hundred books in there. Wow, that's not counting the books I've got scattered all throughout the house. I mean, I've got stacks of books that they're just kind of the decoration. They're, you know. 1920s 1930s you know first edition books that just look cool cool old hardback books um so there's books that i would really love to read more than once but it's like man uh maybe when i'm 90 (laughs) (laughs) but there's too many that i've never read uh so so this one man this i mean what a book so far i'm only about halfway through it so maybe i don't know if you've heard about it a higher call, Adam Makos. Holy smokes, man. Um, my brother told me about this book a couple of years ago. Uh, he got the audio version. So he was listening to it on his way to work. And when, again, this is one of those books I've had it for a while. And I'm just kind of like, this doesn't even, some of this doesn't look like he gets into the, I don't know. It's just a bunch of names. I'm like, ah, I don't know. You know, and I just, I put it down, put it down. And once I finished Harry Cross's book, the, the same night that I put his down, I picked it up again, and I just opened it up like, okay, the first paragraph, it just it, it gripped me, and I couldn't put it down. And I don't want to give too much of the book away, um, but it's essentially the story of uh, the, the author is a huge war. So th- this guy's. This cat's like you and me, man. He's probably about our age. Um, World War II buff, huge World War II buff. As a kid, did a newsletter in middle school through high school and grew it even through college. Same buddies, did a World War II newsletter, and it sent it out. They had a couple thousand readers by the time they were in college. All they did was go around and interview World War II vets and document it in this newsletter. Nice. And one of the things that – one of the rules that they had was – they don't talk to the enemy. They don't, they don't want to hear what the enemy has to say. They're, they're the, the Nazis. They're the Japanese. They're the bad guys. We don't talk about the bad guys. We only you know, talk about our guys. And he, he even mentions going to air shows and walking straight past Oscar Bosch and purposely not talking to him because he said, I didn't care what he had to say. He didn't want to listen to it. And if our listeners will remember, if they don't, they can go back a couple episodes to the episode where I talk about where I sat down with Oscar Bosch at an air show and listen to his story from being a Luftwaffe fighter pilot, which was intriguing. So uh, long story short, this guy hears about a B-17 pilot, lives up in the Northwest, 
and was, oh man, we got to go interview him. He goes up there to see him, and the, the pilot says, I'll tell you my story, but you got to talk to this guy up in Vancouver. His name is Franz Stiegler. He's the hero of the story. And he's like, no, I'm not going to talk to the enemy. I don't care. You know, I went through the whole spiel, and, and B 17 pilot told him, like, okay, if you don't talk to him, you're not going to get anything out of me. Wow. I'll tell you my story after you talk to him. He's the hero of the story, not me. Hmm. And it's essentially about this 109 pilot that escorted a damage. I remember that story. Yep. Everybody's heard that. Well, we've heard like Adam, five seconds of it on a, you know, brought up on it. Did you know this happened? Or, you know, one of these quick right. uh, montages in a role something on a history channel. We've all heard it, but we haven't heard it. This this is the story, and it took him. I want to say it was about eight years for him to put the stories together because the quick trip to Vancouver wasn't enough. Then he goes back to speak with the B seventeen pilot, and that wasn't enough time to compile to publish this book. So he, you know, for years he inserts. I think with an SF team overseas, so he knows what combat is like on the ground. Wow! He flies in a B seventeen to understand what that's like in a seventeen. Um, the guy's unbelievable. I just started following him on Instagram. I'd love to reach out to him. Like, dude, well, go ahead. I was getting ready to say, I'm looking at his website and if you like the way he writes, he's just coming out with a new book now called spearhead, the American tank gunner, his enemy and the collision of lives in world war two. Um, yeah, I'll send you the, well, his website's just his name.com. Adam, Adam Marcos.com. Reach out to him, send him an email. Um, I think it'd be better served if you did it because you're familiar with this book and your enthusiasm will come out in that email and just tell me, and, um, you can go through our archives. There's, I think when I first started, I interviewed like one or two other authors on here. So we have a history of interviewing authors. And so if he's interested in our, my interview style, whatever, go through the archives and you can send him, uh, the, if you haven't read for you new listeners, the forgotten 500, that is a fantastic story. And I had the author on talking about that. Um, so, and we had Bonnie Man Jr., the author of Bones, my grandfather. He's been on the podcast. I'm actually looking at his book right now. But yeah, um, I'd love to get back into kind of the roots of this podcast and getting authors on and um, anyone who's involved in the preservation and the telling of the history. So please put that on your homework list and reach out to him. And uh, and uh, actually. Okay, yeah, he's been on uh, Fox News. He's been on that Sunday mornings show where uh, they like go around and do uh, history. But um, he's been on, featured on Netflix too. So yeah, he's he uh, definitely be interesting to have on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it just it caught my attention right away. The, the kid grew up in, in Pennsylvania. Both of his uh, both of his grandfather served in World War II. Growing up, model, building model airplanes. I was like, man, this guy. It got me right there, but. Um, I'll tell you what, let me read that first paragraph, a couple of sentences just to whet people's appetite, because this is what I picked up. And like I said, couldn't put it down after reading this on December 20, 1943, in the midst of World War II, an era of pain, death and sadness, an act of peace and nobility unfolded in the skies over northern Germany. An American bomber crew was limping home in their badly damaged B-17 after bombing Germany. German fighter pilot and his BF-109 fighter encountered them. They were enemies, sworn to shoot one another from the sky. Yet what transpired between the fighter pilot and the bomber crewman that day 
and how the story played out decades later defies imagination. It had never happened before, and it has not happened since. What occurred in most general terms may well be one of the most remarkable stories in the history of warfare. As remarkable as it is, it's a story I never wanted to tell. And that goes back to, you know, interviewing the enemy for his yep. newsletter. That is a fantastic written paragraph. I mean, I can see how it just scooped into the story. And and kind of like we were talking about before, when you get stuck in, whether it's a theater of operations, a particular battle scenario, a particular island, a particular campaign, when you make that transition from one book to another, if the subject matter is close enough, it's almost like watching a series, like going from one movie to another or one episode of the Pacific to another. You're just you're taking that enthusiasm, that mind state, because if you're reading properly, it's almost like a movie in your head, and you're just switching into part two, and you're just carrying that enthusiasm and that timeline in your head, that movie, and you're just... Going on to part two, different characters, yeah. same area, same theme, but uh, just a different campaign. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and what really helped me understand this bombing campaign, if I could really narrow it down to one book, it's the one that it's going to be the next Hank Spielberg miniseries, The Masters of the Air. Dude, that book, I mean, it's going to tell you everything. And yeah, there's not a book about the 8th Air Force that you're going to pick up afterward where these names are not going to interchange. The movie, um, the, the series that feels like it'll never come. We've been talking about it for so long. It's like, oh, they're they're in post production. Nah, they're just getting the uniforms stitched together, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. They just named their uh, cast. Like, oh, okay. Um, but yeah, so I'm hoping. I would love to see this as a movie. Um, I'd love to. I'd love to figure out a way to make this movie. I want to be Adam Makos meeting yeah. these two guys. I'm I'm too old now to be a the bomber pilot or, or a tail gunner or something, you know, um, I mean, they do it in movies all the time. John Wayne hit Iwo Jima and he was like 50, whatever. Well, I'm going um, through his Instagram but, page and he has recent photos with the, the guy from the tanker crew that he wrote spearhead about. Um, yeah. About, well, He's 2019, two years ago. <laughs> yeah. Real quick, so, you're talking speak, uh, real quick, just before I forget, you're talking about old movies. Do you have a smaller family owned like movie theater in your town? Or is it the big corporation ones? Yeah, it used to be. It's it's kind of commercialized now. Well, check them out because they may offer it. We have one here called the Marquee Theater, and apparently they have one in Huntington, West Virginia, another one in West Virginia, Tennessee, West Virginia, North Carolina, so uh, Florida, the East Coast. But the reason I bring it up is whenever I go see a movie, they'll run a trailer where they have uh, flashback cinema. Like every Wednesday at a matinee, you can go oh, in there. Yeah. And like this this week right now, you can go in there and see Citizen Kane, Gone with the Wind, To Kill a Mockingbird, Tremors, Wizard of Oz, and The Dark Knight, Grease, and Trading Places. And so they have comedies. they got the old classics. But every once in a while, you'll go in there, and, and I always forget because I'm there with my kids, but they'll have, you know, like The Longest Day or some of these older style World War II movies. And it'd be so cool to see those on the big screen with the – you know, even even though a lot of it would be dated, but the sound effects and just having that big screen experiment experience with some of those older flicks would be super cool. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I didn't know. You may want to check out your local theater and see if they ever have yeah. those popping up 
anytime well, soon. Well, speaking of uh, speaking of movies, before we before we cut out here, um, I mentioned on the uh, on the Instagram post uh, advertising for this episode tonight the the GI Film Festival is this weekend. That's out of San uh, San Diego, out of San Diego, California. It's all military based movies. And for, of course, you know, for Walking Point and, and of course, the genesis of, of our uh, friendship and, and partnership here, um, it, it's kind of full circle for them because the initial pilot was featured at the GI Film Fest in San Diego, I want to say in like 2015. Yeah. So now here we are, fast forward to, you know, the full short film, a very long short film um, for Walking Point. And here we are getting accepted in the 2021 film fest out there. So not only that, and, and I know there's a lot of other really cool military base. I know I, I was kind of reading on some of them that they're going to, that they're going to screen. It's a virtual screening. So you can just go to uh, GI film. I think it's just GI film.org or maybe it's GI film festival.org to check them out, to do a virtual screening, of all these uh, military based movies. And some that I know that's about, you know, PTSD and, and dealing with that. Um, but I've got a distinct pleasure that I'll be joining RJ, the nice. writer director of Walking Point. We're going to be part of the uh, Q&A uh, panel after the virtual screening. So we'll be there to kind of answer questions from people who have just seen the movie. And then there, there's, I don't know, about eight or ten of us that are going to be in this panel that represent some of the other movies to kind of answer questions. So that's really exciting. Um, I know it's exciting for everybody from the walking point crew. And it's exciting for me personally to get to talk to potentially other actors or producers, directors, whatever. Yep. You never know when the break's going to happen. Yep. Um, not that I expect one, but I would, I am looking forward to, to doing another military production for sure. Oh, absolutely. We'll, um, we'll have to do a podcast while you're like fresh afterwards, like the next day or, you know, whatever, we'll have to do a podcast with you while you're out there. And for those of you who still haven't seen it, um, not only is it on Vimeo, but it's also on Amazon prime video. So if you have a prime account and you have Amazon on your cable box, or your computer, just type in walking point. It's there. You can view it all 27 minutes of it. You can see Jeff, you can say, you can see um, this great short little film, and um, it's uh, it definitely even during twenty twenty when everything was closed down, the few virtual film festivals that still continued, it was getting it was winning awards and getting praises. And I had the distinct pleasure of watching the filming of that final scene, and it's even when I watch it, like I'm watching the trailer on Amazon as we're talking about, and I just saw him up there with the samurai sword and I just have vis uh, flashbacks of that scene and how well the squib back worked that day. <laughs> <laughs> Put some distance on that stuff. But yeah, you know, my belt still has blood on it from that movie. Fun fact, my contribution to that short film, not to give anything away, there's a scene in it where there's a corpse and they needed a belt and I had my my P42s on that day and so I donated my belt to the cause and on the back side of it, it still has some Hollywood uh, blood stain on my belt so a little piece of me was in that movie there you go <laughs> and uh, what's the scuttlebutt is thanked in the credits so we get a little love there so if you guys stick around long enough to watch the credits you'll see special thanks to uh, what's the scuttlebutt podcast 
But I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. You got any uh, thing you want to say before we hit the road? Uh, no, I hope next time uh, we get some callers and we get some feedback. Um, you know, we can't necessarily do this for free. So hopefully people will start subscribing and sponsoring. Um, I need a microphone. I need yep. cool earphones. I need like, I need to make like World War II uh, earphones, but like that work, you know. You know, it's, get a crush cap. It's funny you say this. It's not World War II, but I have a 1950s style. And if you watch the original, um, the original movie version of the right stuff, they're talking into this microphone. This is a 1950s electric voice model 664. And I want to take it in to have it rewired so that I can plug yeah. it into the board here and do an episode through the model 664 electric voice, even though it's from the fifties. It'd be interesting to see the difference in quality between a 2018 AKG microphone and like a 1950s electric voice. <laughs> yeah. But yep, All that, right. that's going to wrap it up and we will talk to you guys next week. Thanks so much. And as Jeff said, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on the Patreon link. You can subscribe. It's a dollar a month. You can also sign up for the $3.50 a month and the $7 a month. If you sign up for the $7.50 a month, after month two, I will send you a free T-shirt. And not only are you supporting us, but you do get access to the OG5 podcast, which we got to get Jeff on. And I got to start getting some more exclusive video content up for you there for you guys. And um, if you want to see the video format of this, we also live stream and the existing copy will stay on our YouTube channel. And so if you head over to YouTube.com, you can support us that way. Help us get to 1,000 subscribers when we get to that point. Uh, we'll be monetized on YouTube and help support the channel that way. We're halfway there, but not close enough. So uh, there's two other ways you can support the podcast. And the third, when you head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, um, you can buy our shirts there as well and use the promo code ILISTEN, and that'll save you a few bucks on your shipping. Thank you guys so much. I'm Don Abernathy, and on the behalf of Jeff Copsetta, we will talk to you all next week. Well, not next week, but next time. Hopefully it'll be next week. We definitely got to get more and more of these put together uh, more consistently. But, Jeff, thank you so much. And the audience, thank you guys so much. And we will talk to you soon.